How are you guys doing tonight? All right. It's great to be here with you guys uh, this evening and uh, to worship the Lord, celebrate with you. Tonight we have a, a really joyful and I pray really transformative time uh, on our journey together tonight. I want to begin talking about this, restoration, restoration. We exist in a big uh, time in the past couple of years when we've, I think because of the aftermath of the recession, everybody got a little bit poorer, like everybody had a little less money, so you had to figure out ways to, um, to have enjoyment and time that didn't cost as much as before. You started to value things more, I think, in recent years than, than we had had for the 10 or, or 20 years before that. It became really intentional and really popular lately to begin repurposing things, like old things that would be thrown out. Anybody here self-confessed you've, you've either dumpster dove or you've walked the alley and taken stuff that was, that was other people's trash? I've done that, okay? I still do that from time to time, man. You love a good gem when it's sitting there. You look around like you feel like you're, you're, you're the only person who's seeing this amazing thing, like this dresser that's only missing one drawer. Like, we got to take that. What's, what are we doing here? Uh, a lot of things that we get into uh, restoring and, and repurposing that we want to bring back uh, to, to a new condition and use again or or used for a totally new purpose. I want to look at this first. Here's, here's a definition according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Definition of restoration. There's three things that it could be. It's the act or process of returning something to its original condition by repairing or cleaning it. So you, you've thought about this probably in your mind. You see an old table that's restored. It's something like this. Number two, the act of bringing back something that existed before. Uh, so you, I think about like somebody who resurrects their career in sports or something. You say, yeah, he's, he's restored. Like something's different. It was gone and it's come back. Thirdly, it could be the act of returning something that was taken or uh, stolen. So I think about something that's stolen that, you know, you can restore that thing to me, Stephen, if you give back my phone that you stole last week. I'm joking, Stephen Donahue didn't steal my phone, but you get how it works. I mean, I want to look at a few things that... Um, that are some pictures of things that are restored. But before I do that, I want to just ask, what, what's like the, the craziest thing that you personally have restored, an object or something in your life? Anybody have something you've restored that would be impressive? Anybody? We all shop at Target. We don't restore anything. Maybe nothing? What's that? A dresser. There you go. And I, when you were done with it, I probably took it out of the trash, most likely. You restored a dresser. That's great. That's great. Anything else? Your money pit. Your house? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of our houses need restoring here and there. Here's a couple pictures of things that that could be restored. I'm convinced that this might actually be the house from the movie The Notebook. I think it might be. Not that I would know what that house looks like at all, but you see the house on top. And it's completely dilapidated. And then you see the house on bottom, the before and after picture. It's amazing. You wouldn't even believe it was the same house. It's undergone so much transfer, uh, transformation. You have to think, man, how much work went into to doing that thing. Next up would be this. Some of you guys have seen this. Maybe some of you guys with your, your dad or your grandpa or somebody have restored cars. You see a car going down the road now and you think to yourself, man, that, that's amazing that, that that, you know, 57 or whatever is in such great condition. They must have put so much work into that kind of thing. Um, the, the guys that restore cars really take pride in it. Like, 
JJ's every once in a while, they do car shows, things like that. If you restore something, you take pride in it. You want to show it off. You want to, you want to get around other people who have the same kind of hobby, who do the same kind of thing. Now, this isn't as crazy, but here's the next picture. Here's something I've gotten into. This is a close-up of, a, of an old manual typewriter. Now, this isn't quite as crazy as cruising down Elm Street or First Capital on a Saturday night with my restored, like, 57 Chevy. But a couple years ago, I, I started getting into this thing where I would... I would start going through thrift shops and garage sales and antique malls and stuff like that looking for old typewriters that looked pretty beat up, pretty messed up, something like this. Because there's something about a typewriter that always fascinated me, especially one that's not electric, one that I think that basically if, if, you, if you restore it to its original condition, as long as it has all the keys in it, it will still work like it did like 50 years ago. Uh, by the way, if anybody in here ever... Uh, sees some of those things where you can buy those typewriter keys that have been cutting off, please don't ever do that because you can't, I, I've, I've tried this, you can't fix that. There's just no going back. Once you cut a key off a typewriter and make a necklace out of it or make like a, a bracelet or something, that is unrestorable to the original typewriter. So there's some things I guess that might be able to happen that you just can't undo. So here's the next picture. This taken uh, on our Matthias bar here is actually a picture of, of this typewriter right here. This typewriter was the very first typewriter that I had bought. And when I got it, I thought it was brown or gray. And I took it and I saw it and I thought to myself, I've been looking for one for a week or so. And I thought that might be the first one to get going on. And so I took it. It looked terrible. I, I was still curious if I had made a great decision or not. Uh, I spent a couple bucks on it, went over to the only remaining typewriter shop in St. Louis. It's called Jones Typewriter Company in Maplewood. And I went in, and this old man sat down with me and showed me basically what I need to do to recondition this thing. And uh, probably lost a lot of business because I've continued to collect typewriters and try to restore them. This is where it all began for me. This is kind of like the baby that started all of it. And I, I like, spent all this man hours, stunk up our house with, with like, PB blaster, loosener stuff. I remember the first morning after I, I fixed this thing, uh, we woke up, and Sarah said, what? what is that smell? This like WD-40 smell had just permeated our house. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'll do it in the garage next time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but since then, you know, I, I find typewriters, I, I get a hold of them. It's kind of just a little thing I have. It's not as cool probably as restoring old classic cars, but it's kind of my thing. Uh, one time, it can flip a profit, by the way. They're basically worthless. So Whatever anybody tells you, if anybody's asking for money, it's solely based on what you're willing to pay for it. One time I did find a typewriter for $2 at a Salvation Army. I took it home. I think I took a rag and just wiped it off a little bit. And then I sold it to a guy on Craigslist that was trying to do, like, the typewriter and type his girlfriend a note or his fiance and, like, a great, really sweet Valentine's Day gift. And so I brought it. We were a little nervous because he could be a really nice guy trying to buy his girlfriend a typewriter for Valentine's Day. Or he could be a serial killer trying to kill me. Um... <laughs> Uh, we, we were a little nervous how that was going to work out. It worked out great. So that was like a 300 or 3,000 somewhere in there percent profit, something astronomical. So I told myself if I keep finding these typewriters for $2 and sell them for 60 bucks, who, there, there could be like, this could be a part-time gig in this. I'm, I have not um, dropped my day job. Don't worry, I'm still here. I don't think that can supplement my income. I don't feel like that's the Lord's calling for my life. But I know what it's like to 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 search really hard for something that I'm really intent on looking for and to find something. And when I see it, although it looks like a piece of junk, I see something way better in that than what's right there. Uh, I look and see purpose far beyond what the eye can see at the moment. When I look at an old typewriter, I look and see 
what could be after uh, many hours of labor and all that kind of stuff. And of course, then I want to show it off to my friends if you come over. So if you've come over in the last couple of years, there's a good chance I've probably shown you my typewriter collection, which for many of you is code word for Lord knows what. But that literally is exactly what I, what I would show you if you came over. So this, this idea of restoration is huge because I, I think it begs the question, is God a God who restores things or is he a God who throws away junk? Is God about restoration or is he about just getting rid of the old and, and just, just go to Walmart and buy the new? Especially the St. Charles Walmart, which is the worst Walmart in the world. And I'm very sorry if, that, that, actually that's like the first amen that I think I've ever gotten. But if you are here tonight and you work at that Walmart, I will apologize. My beef is with the larger corporation, not with you personally. So tonight we have an opportunity to sidestep 1 Corinthians 15, although I fully believe this is a passage that has resurrection written all over it, we're actually going to read about the restoration of Peter at the end of John's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, what is affectionately called the resurrection of, uh, not the resurrection, he didn't die in the, in the gospels, the restoration, there we go, of Peter. So John chapter 21, uh, Jesus has died uh, he's lived with his disciples before that. He's uh, been crucified. He's risen from the grave. He has reappeared to his disciples. Uh, he's on the side of, of a lake having breakfast with his disciples. And then he takes Peter aside. And the five verses that we're going to go through tonight is a very special conversation that needed to happen in Peter's life. And I believe that things like this, uh, many of us have experienced this in this room and things will never ever be the same. So John chapter 21 from 15 through 19 in these verses it says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk yourself wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for the work of Christ, uh, the work that Brandon and, and Tyler and others, Father, that we've already begun to hear about again tonight. We pray tonight that you would help us to, to simply have faith, that your purposes for us, that your restorative, that your restoration work in our lives would be, would be made known. Father, help us to believe that you're committed to us, that you do not throw us away, but you restore all things, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. So the conversation begins. They had finished breakfast. Jesus waits for them to finish their egg McMuffins. And then he looks over to Simon Peter, maybe even takes him aside, and begins to walk with him. He says, Simon, son of John. He addresses him, I think, by his pre-Jesus name. Now, instead of last name, something like mine, my name would be uh, Jared of St. Charles or, or uh, Jared, son of Cindy, you know, my mom. 
Uh, that, that, that's where I've come from. Uh, instead of a last name, you would be described as being the son of somebody. And Jesus, I think, is in this restoration work tonight. He's going all the way back to the beginning with Peter. Saying, hey, Peter, um, I'm going to call you by the name that's the name you went by before I even pursued you and gave you a new name because this work that I'm doing in your life goes all the way back to the beginning. There's nothing outside of bounds. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And more than these can mean maybe one of three things. Maybe he means, do you love me more than the fish that you just caught? Do you, which means, do you love me more than your life vocation? Uh, more than these could be, do you love me more than these other disciples? And Peter probably would be like, yes, amen, I do. I do not like these guys as much as you. Or Jesus probably is saying something like this, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than the rest of these disciples do? Do you love me the most? All throughout the Gospels, we read about how Peter was the, the chief disciple, the spokesman, the one who led the way. And so Jesus is affirming him, asking him once again, can you give this confession? Do you love me? So when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he, his response is, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Now, what does it mean to feed my lambs? Why would he tell Peter, okay, if you love me, you're going to feed my lambs? Now, the question is, who are the lambs? Who are the sheep? And if you read all throughout the Gospels, you realize that Jesus sees his followers as sheep. And as the, the church is about ready to grow here in the book of Acts, it's going to grow very fast. And I promise you, all the disciples will be very overwhelmed. But Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Your job, Peter, if you love me, is to feed my lambs. Now, how do you feed the sheep? How do you feed the followers of Jesus? Well, you teach them about Jesus. You tell them who I am. You tell them the gospel. You tell them the story of what I've done. And you teach them not just information, but you teach them how to live with me, how to be with me. Teach them how to live like my sheep. Teach them how to follow me because I'm the great shepherd, right? That's what Peter calls Jesus later in 1 Peter chapter 5. He calls Jesus the great shepherd. Jesus says to Peter in response to this question, if you love me, then you'll feed my sheep. Uh, you'll make disciples. At the end of Matthew's gospel, the great commission is to make disciples, is to feed the sheep in all the nations. Go share the gospel everywhere and then make disciples and train up and raise up, show them what it looks like to follow Christ. An amazing, amazing calling. Um, why do you think Peter needs to be restored? Jesus comes in here asking three questions, and, and he gets three answers, but why does it all need to happen? Now, a short answer is Peter denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus steps back into Peter's story in his failure, and he gives him an opportunity to reaffirm what he truly feels and thinks and believes about Christ. But I think Peter is coming off of something much bigger than just a, a three-part denial. I think Peter is coming off of a very long season of readiness. We just got done doing three uh, discipleship trainings for our covenant members here at Matthias. And, and, and one of the pieces that I went into that, that's a new piece we haven't talked about before is um, as you talk about discipleship, which is just being with Jesus and discipling relationships where, where mature Christians show uh, less mature but growing Christians, what it looks like to be with Jesus through the scripture and through their life. Um, there's a season that 
um, I, I guess let me put it this way. Is there hope for you if you're not in a discipling relationship? Is there anything you can do to be active in this process, this Great Commission discipleship work? And I believe there is. I believe there's something called a season of readiness. A season in which you are brought back again and again to answer this question in your life, do I love Jesus? A season in which you have the opportunity to, to reflect once again on who the Lord is, who he's called you to be, what he's done for you, and, and you do things that prepare you for a life of disciple-making. And we run into these seasons of readiness at different times throughout our life, but I believe that Peter has come off of what we could say would be a three-year season of readiness as Jesus has discipled him and been leading him and the other disciples and preparing them for this great, amazing mission that he's about to give them. So I want to look at this real quick in this season of readiness. As I say these out loud, just think about this. This, um, I have to say too that I think most of my life I haven't really liked Peter. I don't think if he and I ran into each other at a coffee shop, I'd want to talk to him very much. I don't think I'd want to like hang out with him. But then I realized looking at Peter's season of readiness that that's probably because I see so much of my own mistakes in his life. I see so much of his failure in mind. I see so much of his double-mindedness in mind. So let me read through this. This is a mixture of, of awesome things and not so awesome things that Peter experienced in his season of readiness. Jesus' first words to Peter were, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That's the very first words Jesus ever said to Peter in John chapter 1. Peter listened to Jesus' teachings many times. Peter was sent out to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. Pretty amazing stuff. Peter was sent out uh, as he saw uh, Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. I don't think he looked at Jesus diff- uh, the same way after that at all. Uh, Peter walked on water as he was looking at Jesus, and then he sank as soon as he took his eyes off Christ. I hope he could swim, by the way. I hope he could. Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. He said Jesus was the Christ, but then in the very uh, few verses later, he rebukes Jesus for preaching and proclaiming what it would take for him to become the Christ. And then Jesus rebukes Peter for rebuking Jesus about what it would mean to be the Christ. Like this is a, this is a huge uh, back and forth thing that happens with Peter and with Jesus. Uh, Peter saw Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah, which means that he saw an amazing display of Jesus' glory up on the mountain. Peter was told by Jesus, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, which is what Peter's name means, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Nobody's ever offered you that. What an amazing statement to sit in. What an amazing thing, an amazing weight to carry. Peter has a conversation with Jesus, and Peter asks him, he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Because God is a forgiving God. Peter said that he would never deny Jesus in Matthew 26, 33. And then in verse 34, he was told by Jesus that he would deny him. And then in verse 35, then he denied that Jesus' foretelling would be true, that he would deny Jesus. Like this back and forth happens again. I'll never, I'll never do it. Peter was told by Jesus to watch and keep guard while he prayed. But then Peter and the other disciples fell asleep. Peter was there. Peter cut off the high priest's servant's ear when Jesus was arrested in the garden, but then was told by Jesus immediately to put his sword back in his sheath. 
Peter denied being Jesus' disciple twice to a servant girl. And then another time, to round out the threefold denial, Peter denied being with Jesus at all when he was arrested in the garden. If you've ever denied an association with a friend, you know how terrible that feels. Peter threw himself into the sea after Jesus resurrected. When they saw that it was Jesus, one of the other disciples said, it is the Lord. Then Peter presumes to stand up, put his outer nice garment on, and then he jumps out of the boat and he goes to swim toward Jesus. He's so excited to see him again. I have to believe how happy he was when he saw Jesus standing once again. His death wasn't the last word. Lastly, Peter was told by Jesus, along with the rest of the disciples, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus says, I'm I'm going to send you, Peter, and the rest of the disciples, but something very specific needs to happen first, and that's your restoration. That's your affirmation, and that's exactly what Jesus does. There's three things I want to say tonight about God the Restorer. The first statement is this. He restores us from our past struggles. Amen? Okay, if we went home tonight, we would have already heard enough. He restores us from our past struggles. Uh, Thankfully, most of you have been praying for my family uh, for the sale of our house in Granite City. I grew up in St. Charles. I lived in St. Charles when Sarah and I met at this church. And when we got married, she already owned a house. The housing bubble had just burst, conveniently enough. I was renting with a buddy here, so... I move out, ship over, I become an Illinois resident, which I still am to this day, but we've felt the toll for the past six and a half years of doing ministry 30 minutes away, of our kids not growing up with other people's kids. Um, So nothing against where we live, it's a wonderful community, but we feel the angst of not being here, of not being in this community. And I do have to tell you that it's amazing. Uh, We have had, uh, it was about four months ago, I think, that we've had our last showing where somebody actually called to look at our house. And after the church prayed for us, the next day at 2.15, I get a call from our agent that somebody wants to see our house. And I wish that I could tell you that we knew at this point that those people were going to buy our house. That would be amazing news to tell you tonight. That would be like, I might just actually rip up my sermon and come in and just party and eat cinnamon rolls and just rock it, and that would be amazing. And we would praise the Lord. It would be awesome. With cinnamon roll stuff all over our face. I can't say that as of yet. We're still pushing on on that lead right there, those people. But I want to ask you to keep praying. Now, as as victorious as all of this seems, here's the reality of what I I face. I grew up here in St. Charles. I lived in St. Charles as a bachelor after uh, being divorced and moving back in with friends here in St. Charles who weren't Christians. I lived for three years largely and thankfully, in many ways, spending most of my time around friends who needed Jesus. But it's also very costly. It's also very costly in your life. And so when I think about moving back to St. Charles, I think about people who were going to see me. And when I left, I was a guy working for kind of a cool sports ministry. And now I move back, and, and I'm a pastor. And I wonder how many people are going to do a double take when they hear, wait, you're what? You're the guy who did this on Main Street. You're the guy who, who blew that person off. You're the guy who handled that relationship wrong. You're the guy who did all these things. That's actually, in many ways, that's what I have to look forward to coming back. Now, if those things had the last word, then I would just be full of fear and that would be it. And then I would just say, you know what, let's, let's, let's stay in Illinois. Matter of fact, let's just go move to California. We thought about that one time because San Diego is an awesome place. But 
But I believe that the things that I've failed in in my life, God desires to use them to proclaim the power of Christ. So for me, six and a half years has been a season of readiness and some ways to come back and to tell the story of what the Lord has done in my life. And so please continue to pray for that. Please continue to pray that our house sells. I'd love to get a phone call tomorrow afternoon. That would be amazing. (laughs) Or tomorrow morning or tonight at 10 o'clock. That would be awesome, whatever it may be. How do you think Peter felt when Jesus asked if he still loved him? How do you think Peter felt? See, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, does Jesus still love me? I denied him. It wasn't even high stakes. I just denied him at like the first chance I got, and then I did it two more times. Does Jesus still love me? No, Jesus comes in, and and he seems to want to remind Peter to ask Peter, do you know that you still love me? All throughout this passage, the forgiveness and grace and mercy of the Lord seems to be an assumption. It's a given. God loves Peter. Christ loves Peter no less. And I can tell you this. God, at this very moment right now, loves you no more, no less than he will for eternity if you are Christ's follower. Christ changes everything. He restores us from our past struggles. I got a cool quote to check out with you. Check this out. Here's a quote, it says this. The Lord never, ever tires of forgiving. Never. It is we who tire of asking for forgiveness because he never gets tired of forgiving. You see, the problem of forgiveness, we think that God would stop forgiving us at some point, that it would be too much, but but actually it's we are the ones who get tired of asking for forgiveness, but he never gets tired of forgiving. Uh, Bonus points if you already guessed this. Next slide. Uh, okay, I'm not Catholic. I'm just going to say that. You should know that by now. I'm a pastor at a Protestant church. I have disagreements with many parts of Catholic theology, but sometimes when Papa Francisco says something, he knows what he's talking about, okay? The guy, I'm going to give that to him. Point for the Catholics. That's fine. Point for the Christians. God is a God of forgiveness. Because of Christ, the record of debt that stood against us is nailed to the cross. That means that he will never, ever continue, uh, he will never, ever stop to lavish grace upon grace upon grace upon us. So he restores us from our past struggles. They don't stand up against us. They don't stand up against you or me anymore. In verse 16, the story continues. He said to him a second time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. Tend. The same word for shepherd that Peter's going to use in 1 Peter 5. Tend my sheep. You know that that in Scripture, sheep are never actually uh, viewed as stupid from the Lord? You know that? We like to say that all the time. Well, sheep are stupid. That's why we're like sheep. Well, Scripture says we like sheep have all gone astray, but Jesus is the great shepherd, which means he loves his sheep. A shepherd's not a shepherd unless he loves sheep. Peter says, uh, Jesus says back to Peter, if you love me, you'll shepherd my sheep. The only, the only word in Jesus' three-word answer that, that is continuous throughout all these three answers is my. Because you have, you have tend and feed and sheep and lambs, but the thing that stays the same is that we're his. Tend my sheep. In verse 17, and he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. Like I have, there's nothing that you don't know. You're asking me a third time. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So the restorations happened. The three-part denial has, has been contradicted. It's been flipped over. Peter's been able to answer three times, yes, I love you. But you ever wonder why why this question? And is it just about a, a big restoration by itself? Is there something deeper that might be being said here? I believe there is, and I want to show it to you. Now, three times in verse 15, 16, 17, a, a question that Jesus asks, do you love me, is answered by Peter, yes, I love you. But I can tell you this, and you don't see it on the surface in English, but in the Greek, there's two words for love that are in play here. The first one is, is related to agape. You may have heard of it. It's, it's like it, it describes a sacrificial, costly love that takes something from you. And the second kind is, is phileo. And that's the love that, that is shared between friends. It's no, it's no less good, but it's less costly usually. Uh, you have a, a places like Philadelphia that are named after this, right? The city of brotherly love. So I love you in a costly way. I'm your friend. There's two different uh, ways that, that this word love is translated. Now, now, I want to walk you through, if I had to give the JCSV for what I would translate this passage to, it would sound something like this. Simon, son of John, do you love me in a costly way? Yes, Lord, I'm your friend. Second time. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me in a costly way? Yes, Lord, I'm your friend. Third time. Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Yes, <laughs> yes, Lord, I'm your friend. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is stooping. He's condescending in a very gentle way. He's coming down to where Peter is. He's offering him a self-sacrificial love, and Peter's giving back a friendly love. But Jesus doesn't throw him away. He doesn't cast him off. He meets him in that. And then he continues to show him what that cost is going to be. My friends, we cannot underestimate how much Christ comes to where we are, meets us in our brokenness, meets us in our misunderstanding and gives us grace. My goodness. Second thing we could say about God the restorer is this. He restores us to our present calling. Jesus gives Peter back a, a present mission, a present calling. He says, feed my lambs in verse 15. Tend my sheep in verse 16. Verse 17, he says a third time, feed my sheep. A present mission that he's giving him, his Life is changing in this moment. Your orientation, Peter, your mission is dramatically different. Though you were the first to go back to the fishing nets, your job is very different from now on. He changes, he restores our present calling. If Jesus asked you right now, right now in this moment, do you love me? What would cause you to hesitate? What would cause you to pause? What would, you'd want to say, yes, I love you. 
But then these things that you've done and been, things that make you doubt that at times can creep up in the back of your head. Yes, I love you, but I know that I, I, know that I did that. Yes, I love you, but I can't even remember it because of what's been done to me. Yes, I love you, Jesus, but the world is so broken. Next slide. Put up, uh, skip that slide, actually, sorry. It's a big list. A lot of words, a lot more words that could be on there. A lot of things that cross paths with our stories. A lot of things that, that if Jesus walked in the room right now and asked you, do you love me? Because his love's not even in question for you. But if he asked you, do you love me? Some of these things would be a temptation to creep up and cloud that judgment, cloud your view. These things, these things that we've done, some of these things, some of these things that have been done to us, some of these things that are, that are just the brokenness of sin that fills the world around us, that they cause us to lose sight of our love for Christ and his love for us. They cause us to get distracted from our mission. Because restoration is all about preparing us for mission. Jesus uses this broken and imperfect man. He restores him. He affirms him. And he's going to send him out to begin a movement that continues to this day. A man with a checkered past. A man who made terrible mistakes. A man who led others by example into terrible mistakes. I know what that feels like. He overcomes his sin, enters into his story, in your story, and in my story. And not only does he restore us, but he gives us a mission of feeding the sheep. Of disciple making. Every one of us called to make disciples is a part of the Great Commission. Every one of us gets the joyful call to lose our life and show others what it looks like to be with Jesus and, and, and to, to invite them along the way with us. And we're tempted to think that all these things would actually disqualify us from that. But if we, are, if we just would believe that he's restoring us, every one of these things can simply be markers that point to the redemptive work that he continues to do in our life. Every one of these things that has, is, and will be overcome by the power of the grace of our Lord. I don't think they're actually distractions from mission. I think they're actually reasons for mission, like ways to connect on mission with a world around us that knows a whole lot of this, but does no hope outside of it. But we do, you do, because of Christ. He restores our present calling. Your present calling and mine. In verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. These verses are talking about the death of Peter. Now, John's gospel would have already been out um, long after the death of Peter, at least, at least a handful of years. So the news of Peter's death would have spread already. And John, as he writes this, inspired by the Spirit, 
is sharing that this is exactly what Jesus said would happen, this martyrdom of Peter. Peter was probably crucified upside down toward the end of the reign of Emperor Nero in Rome, AD 64 to 66, somewhere in there. And it's, it's said that Peter said that he needed to be crucified upside down because, number one, he was unworthy to die like his Savior, and number two, because he didn't want others to worship him like they should worship Jesus. Now go back to the garden, go back to all the mistakes in his season of readiness. I mean, it's, it's tempting to think that that guy could never make it to that guy. Like, how does that guy ever end up being able to say, please crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like my Savior? I don't want to be worshipped. I'm not the Christ. We lose hope in what God is doing in our lives. I promise you that if you looked back on your life, you would have said there's no way, so many of you, that the you today could have been the you back then. It's so hard to see on a daily basis, but he's working on you. He's began a good work in you, and he's bringing it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's not giving up on any one of us because we believe in Christ. This is a a fulfillment, I think, of of John chapter 13. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, they say this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. He's talking about the cross. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter thinks he's ready in the moment. Like, I'm ready, Jesus. Send me to the cross. I'll be there. And Jesus said, no, actually, I know that you're going to fail me. I know that you're going to deny me. Don't worry, you can't go there now, but afterward, you'll be able to go there. And what do you think the connection is? It's this moment of restoration. The giving of the Spirit that's going to happen soon after to a restored man who's been accepted by Christ, who Jesus knows every last one of his sins, and he restores him because of his grace. We are no different. If we had that slide back up there, there's so many more things that you could put up here that none of us ever know that, that wouldn't even fit on this slide. And he knows that. He's allowing us to go our own way long enough to get into our failure to see that we are not enough, that we need him. Afterwards, you'll be able to go, Peter. Not yet, but afterwards, you will get there. He believes that Peter will last till the end, till the very end. For, for the Christian, maturity, by the way, is all about surrender. It's not necessarily about age. A lot of people who've been in churches for a long time, but they're not mature. And some people who've only been a believer for a very short amount of time who've learned maturity very quickly because they put it into the fire. So maturity for the Christian is all about surrender, self-surrender, every single day, even to the last day, even if it means that you're crucified upside down. That's getting to the place of Christian maturity. Peter had to be brought to the end of himself for the sake of Christ and his mission. Christ is going to accomplish what he will through Peter, through you, and through me. Lastly, third thing we'll say about God the restorer is that he restores the direction of our future. He 
He restores the direction of our future. It's so easy to get caught up in, in thinking we know where we need to go or where we want to go or where we should be to be used by God. But you know what's going to happen after this episode with Peter? He's going to give Peter the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is going to lead the church through the end of the days. It's going to lead them on their mission. He's like, Peter, let me re-clarify for you. Although you denied me and thought that was the end of the story, I have a mission for you. Now, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to do the work on you, but then I'm going to send you out for the sake of my great, amazing mission. The only way that they're going to believe that I'm that good is if they see that your life was that bad. If they see that you were that weak, then they will believe that only I am the one who's strong, says Christ. Jesus never calls us to go somewhere where he hasn't already gone, though. I mean, think about that. You think that Christ is calling you to go somewhere? It can feel lonely at times until you remember that, that he's our brother, that we can, he's identified with us in every single way. He's gone everywhere and further than we ever have or ever will have to go. He's with us when we're ridiculed. He's with us in rejection because of our sin. He's with us on mission. He's with us in victory. He restores the direction of our future. I, so I, I got to tell you this. This is crazy. It's crazy when stuff like this happens. Nine years ago, uh, in the midst of um, a marital separation, and I'm a guy who has a complete uncertain financial future, so the first thing I took as far as a, a new place to stay was my buddy's basement where there's this really junky futon and a whole bunch of like his stuff laying everywhere. He's a hunter, so it's really nasty and everything. And I love hunters, but man, like you got some weird stuff that you got to store sometimes. So I'm sleeping like night after night in this unfinished damp basement in a store, basically sleeping in a storage locker. That's what it feels like. And, and I have no idea how, but Isaiah chapter 49, I don't know how I found it, but it became my anthem chapter for years from that season. It became my anthem chapter when I would read about these things that the Lord would say that though you feel exiled, though, though you've been put away, even if a nursing mother can forget her child, I will never forget you. I've, I've carved, I've engraved your name on the palm of my hands. I will not forget you. Uh, in your barrenness, a time will come when all the children that you have will be whispering in your ear, find a bigger place for us because this place is too small. Uh, that all flesh through our restoration and redemption, will come to know that Jesus is Lord. So nine years ago, I'm laying on a damp, in a, in a very depressing situation. My life as I had known it was completely over. And then you know what, in what would seem like coincidence, you know what I just so happened to come upon today in my readings that I've been in Isaiah for the past few months? Isaiah chapter 49. Man, what a difference nine years makes. And it's not time. Time doesn't heal anything. God heals everything in his time. And I wish that I could have believed so much sooner. I wish it didn't take me nine years to look back and realize that he was faithful every step of the way. That he wasn't giving up on me. That he wasn't giving up on his promises. That, that however my life worked out, he was going to be faithful. 
And there's many things still that will be uncertain. Harder days will come in my life, and that's okay. But that is the faith that I pray that I will continue to cultivate, that you and me together would learn how to be as sure on the easy days as the hard days, that he is faithful, that he is a restorer, that he is committed to a good work in us. Back in verse 19, it says, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now the call is simple, follow me, because Jesus is the missionary. Jesus is the disciple maker. Jesus is going before you in every sphere of your life. Jesus is going places where he will call you to follow him. Follow me has to be the first and the last thing that we stay focused on because, because the moments that we get so idolizing of our missions at times and we forget to follow Jesus, then it becomes about us. But I think John is trying to say something like this. Follow me because Jesus knows the way where he wants you to go. Follow me. The call in everything is to embrace this life that flows out of this costly Jesus, I love you in a sacrificial way. I will follow you today. The invitation remains the same. Follow me. Regardless of your past, it's a new day. Follow Christ. In your present struggles, there's new hope. And I just want to say that again. In any of your present struggles, yourself, your marriage, your relationships, your finances, your future, your failures, your successes, all these things there's new hope. His mercies are new every single day. Follow Jesus. Whatever God has in store for your future, fear not. Follow Christ. That's what it's all about. It's not about hiding from Jesus and trying to earn back his favor by being on mission whether it's making disciples or serving the poor, whatever it may be, everything that God does through us is, is, is coming from a place of complete and ongoing restoration that can only be attributed to the work of God. He's working on you. He's working on me. He's doing a good work through you. He's doing a good work through this church. He's making disciples, and I believe that for years and years and years, he's gonna make more. I believe he's gonna send missionaries to wherever he wants them to be from this church to make disciples, who make disciples. We have to follow him together. God, I, I just lift up my brothers and sisters. I pray tonight for a fresh invitation to follow you. Jesus, you come to us in our brokenness. You overlook, you see past the things that you've canceled by the power of your cross. You've resurrected defeated every last enemy, every last thing that stands between us and you, and you, you restore us. So, Father, if the invitation is to follow Christ again tonight, then help us to lay down the things that confuse us from your restoration power, your restoration work in our lives. And so I pray especially for the hopeless right now, for those in this room who are believers who've forgotten, for those, Father, who walk into the room not knowing what to believe. I pray that you would stir within them to follow Christ. Speak into us in the deepest places that need your restoration. Continue to give us patience. Thank you for being patient with us.